Blog Talk Radio. From the offices of Lives in the Balance in Portland, Maine, it's helping behaviorally challenging students. This is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to the program. Glad you were able to join in. Uh, I forgot to do this on the parents program this morning, so I'm prompting myself now. The call-in number, if you have a question or comment or concern or anecdote or reminiscence, is 646-727-2691. Uh, On last week's radio program, I said that we were going to be having the educators panel this week, but of course I was off by a week, so the educators panel is next week. Barring any phone calls, and of course we always hope we do get phone calls, but barring any phone calls, um, I'm going to do what I thought I was going to do last week, which is to at the prompting of some folks who attended the second annual Lives in the Balance conference I was going to do a radio program devoted to the key themes of the model just to refresh people and to serve as a resource uh, for people who are new to the model uh, and put it in the listening library. So uh, if we don't get any calls today, um, that's what we'll do. Um, But I thought I would start with a wonderful email that I received and got permission to read and then we'll jump into the key themes if we don't have any callers. That number, again, just in case, 646-727-2691. Here's the email. Uh, and you know what? These are the kinds of emails that, in my business, make your day. Dear Dr. Green, I was hired as a teaching assistant last year and put to work in a kindergarten classroom with a severe, behaviorally challenging child. The teacher told me she didn't know what to do with him. After 30 years of teaching, nothing she knew was working. She said she wasn't ready, nor she said that the student wasn't ready, nor was he likely to be ready for grade one. She said he was at a three and a half year old level and that until the emotional stuff was out of the way, the learning wasn't likely to take. I was hired late in January, so the pressure was on, and I was brand new to the school system. But I was told to trust my instincts and that it was good to have the ability to think out of the box since they hadn't had much success to that point. This student was a fighter on the school bus, in the playground, in the classroom, with the students, teachers, and aides, and we also knew with his mother. He threw things around the classroom jumped on the furniture, yelled at the top of his lungs, was angry, aggressive, and seldom part of classroom activities. He was labeled ODD, ADHD, was born addicted to crack, and had other problems in his life. By the time I got there, everyone was exhausted. Two of the in-house professionals told me he was going to be a Columbine kid, One said she honestly believed he had demonic qualities. 
wasn't until the next September that an assistant principal recommended your book, Lost at School. As I read it, the tears poured down my face. The year before, I had spoken your words to the aides, the teacher, the principal, the OT, the PT, fighting for a child's right to get the skills he needed rather than just being punished all the time. They looked at me like I was a Martian. Darn near cost me my job. I met their goals and exceeded their expectations with that little boy. He would have been pushed on to grade one anyway, but he moved on instead. I'd used a model similar to yours before I'd even read about yours for exactly the reasons you wrote about. I am ever so grateful to have read your book. Me too. Me too. We have a caller. I think I know who it is, but I'm about to find out. From area code 604, how are you today? Hi, Dr. Green. What's on your mind? Um, I was wondering if you could give me some advice. Have a uh, grade three student who, after many uh, conversations, came up with a plan on how she could be successful in the classroom, and everybody was on board with it except the mom. She would not allow it to happen. Hmm. Let's hear more. Um, well, she was a student who uh, made lots of noises in the classroom, banged the desk, uh, very disruptive, uh, would leave the classroom, and through the conversations, um, she was saying she didn't want to do the work. But she came up with a plan that she could um, be in the classroom, be non-disruptive, but do a preferred activity. And what she chose was coloring. And the teacher and myself and the principal all thought, you know, she was so excited about the plan that this was a great place to start. And the mom said, absolutely not. What was the mom's objection to the plan? She felt that coloring was, we were just being babysitters and that there was no academics involved. Uh, we discussed the fact that um, she wasn't doing any academics anyway, but she was being very disruptive, so other kids couldn't learn. She wasn't uh, lots of times in the classroom, and that if she was in the classroom, she could hear what was going on and um, be comfortable in starting the preferred activity with coloring. And uh, through her coloring, she would hear what was going on and hopefully be comfortable enough to um, want to do what everybody else was doing in time. All and right. mom just said, uh, not, not a chance. She would not have her daughter sitting in class coloring. So I can tell you what I'm hearing, and tell me if I'm right. Mom, what, what you all, I talked about this, I think, last week with reference to a student in one of the schools in Maine that is participating in the project that I have going on here in Maine in which the model is being implemented in 14 different schools 
geographically distributed throughout the state. And one of the speakers at the second annual Lives in the Balance conference, no, we don't have those videos up on the website yet, but we're working on it. Could be a few weeks yet. Uh, one of the speakers was the principal at a school, elementary school here in Maine, who had a kid who would definitely have been placed in a setting outside the school had the general ed building in which the model was being implemented not been implementing the model. And what was clear to the folks in the school is that they had to lower the bar for this student, lower the expectations for this student rather dramatically to have, at least initially, to have any hope at all of the student being able to remain in the building because the demands that were being placed on the student in the building were so exceeding the student's skills required to meet those demands. So they had only one goal for the student in the school year in which they began trying to solve problems collaboratively with the student, and that was that, he, that they didn't really have any expectation that he would do much in the classroom. They only had the expectation that he'd be in the classroom, and that's where the bar was lowered to in the beginning. And then with the expectation that slowly but surely, once that expectation was being met and once they were able to gather information about all of the factors that was making it difficult for the student to meet the many different expectations that the student was having difficulty meeting, that they would eventually start solving those problems and the expect the bar the expectations bar, would eventually be raised higher and higher. And here's the good news about that story, and then I'll get to the punchline. Not that this is a joke, but I'll get to the most important part. They lowered the expectations bar to about as low as it could go, and the student increasingly became able to stay in the classroom. And then they started gathering information from the student about the expectations the student was having difficulty meeting and started adding plan B to the mix because what they started with was almost totally plan C, removing virtually all expectations. And slowly but surely, the student started meeting increasing expectations. And that's how they kept a student who would otherwise have been placed out incidentally, costing the school system a fortune, that's how they kept him in. And he is now meeting more expectations than ever. Now the punchline. The mom was on board. The mom understood why they were doing what they were doing because the mom understood that her son had lots of lagging skills and lots of unsolved problems. And the mom understood that the bar wasn't being lowered forever, just temporarily, to make it possible for her son to remain in the building, and that eventually they'd start gathering information, understanding what was getting in the student's way, and that it was their every expectation that the student would eventually begin meeting increasing numbers of expectations and that's why the mom was okay in the beginning, having her son not do any academics 
at least in the beginning. That's the punchline. So now comes my question. Um, the only person who wasn't on board with the solution was Mum. Correct. That makes me ask, to what degree is Mum aware of her child's lagging skills and unsolved problems, of which I am assuming there are many in both yep. categories? And to what degree is Mum aware that this is not our permanent resolution, but only a temporary resolution, because we need to figure out what's getting in the student's way and then slowly but surely start raising the bar. Is mom in the loop on all of that yet? Yes. So why is she still, does she have, and the fact that she's objecting to no academics shouldn't be fatal, but what does she envision as a solution that would work? And by the way, I can certainly understand whatever concerns mom has if I was to guess, and of course, guessing is against the rules, but if I was going to do it anyways, I would say that it is hard for mom to envision her child spending the school day doing absolutely no academics. Right. Is that where she's coming from? Yes. So I'm wondering about a conversation with mom about how you all came up with the solution you came up with. And, and to tell you the truth, one thing it does sound like is for sure, the mom was not involved in the discussion about the solution originally because it sounds like a solution was arrived at that mom then objected to. Is that accurate? That's correct. It came up. Okay. Uh, during one of the conversations, the student just lit up and she said, I have an idea, and um, it was at the end of the school day, and then uh, we brought Mum in um, and, and discussed it with her, and uh, then it didn't go well from there. But everything that you had described previously sounded yes. like exactly the same case, except that even though Mum is aware of the lagging skills and difficulties, and is aware that this was a very short term and to slowly graduate her back into what the rest of the class is doing, she would not allow her daughter to do that. And since the solution needs to be mutually satisfactory, that shouldn't be fatal to the process. What it does provide us with is some information, and that is that if we come up with a solution without mom's input, we run the risk that mum's concerns will not be addressed by the solution we've come up with without her. And right. um, that's not tragic, but keep going, sorry. I was just wondering, though, because it's the child's plan, um, I'm not sure she would have come up with this having a conversation with mum there at first. And that's possible, so you, you might not have had mum come up. You might not have had mum present, in which case you've got a little bit more shuttle diplomacy to do. Right. And you've got a kid who is about to learn that, um, well, the solution's got to be mutually satisfactory. So it doesn't mean that it wasn't a great idea. It just means that we've still got a little bit more work to do on the solution. And if it's your judgment that it would have been harder for the kid to participate with mom there, then um, 
I think you keep doing it the way you're doing it. I would be careful to present the solution to mum as if it is a done deal. Um, and I and truth is, not knowing mum, I can come up with a variety of potential theories for why she may not have been especially responsive to the original solution. But once again, that shouldn't be fatal to the process. Um, what I'm wondering is if we went back to the student and said, listen, mom um, thought that it was okay for us to not have you doing everything that goes on in the classroom and for you to be coloring sometimes. But mom was wondering if there are some things you could still be doing instead of us basically saying that you don't have to do anything I think mom's having trouble imagining you coloring full-time. Are there things that you could do so that you're not coloring all the time? And the big question is, would that have mom feeling better about the solution? Especially since you're telling me that it sounded almost identical to the story I described about the school in Maine, right up until the point where we got to removing all expectations. If that's what mom's struggling with, then I'm going to assume we've got mom on board for lagging skills. We've got mom on board for unsolved problems. This next one is a bit of a leap, but I hope I'm right about this. We've got mom on board for the need to reduce expectations. We just don't have mom on board for coloring full time. Right. All safe assumptions? Yes. I'm not even sure about, well, actually that's a question maybe I need to ask Mama about coloring some of the time because she just said she will not be coloring. She could do um, grade work that was two years younger than her. Oh, I see. All right, so... Um, but the student was sort of, on board with that. <laughs> well, this is the give and take of coming up with a mutually satisfactory solution. And it would be no different if it wasn't mom, but instead it was the classroom teacher saying, look, I, I get the need to reduce expectations, but it's going to be very hard for me to get my head around having a student in my classroom who's coloring full time or coloring at all. But we don't know that, it sounds like. So, we'd ha so we've got some more discussion to have about how we reduce expectations in a manner that is mutually satisfactory for mom, you all, and mom's daughter. And right. um, so I think that we just haven't made our way fully through the process of the invitation yet, and mom let us know that. All mom really did is she let us know that the solution wasn't mutually satisfactory to her, that she had some concerns about having that be what it looks like to reduce expectations for her daughter. But here's the good news, if there is good news. And I, truth is, this, I don't think this is unusual in the sort of the annals of solving problems collaboratively. The good news is she does see the need for reduced expectations. There's just a difference of opinion about what it's going to look like for that to happen. And that feels, believe it or not, a little bit easier to deal with than having there be a disagreement about whether the expectations should be reduced in the first place. 
Okay. Um, another, uh, one thing that I did leave out was what Mum would really like to see happen is that um, her student get or her daughter get one-on-one -on -one support full time. Well, and that and I, um, my reading of the tea leaves is that that's not mutually satisfactory for you all, or is that something you all are open to on that count? It's not possible. We don't have the manpower for it. And it's, it's not necessarily going to um, meet her needs. But the thing is, we just can't do it. We don't have the man, man, manpower. Cannot hire Got anybody it. else. And there is just too many needs in the school to give her daughter one-on-one -on -one the whole day. Well, um, that's what what I'm now hearing is, and we don't want to get into sort of dueling solutions here, um, we actually have more than one solution on the table if your reading of mom is accurate. I don't know if she's – it sounds like she has stated that. Yes. Got it. So she's got a solution on the table that um, isn't mutually satisfactory and potentially not realistic either. Right. You all have a solution on the table that wasn't mutually satisfactory for her. Right. Um uh, it turns into a power struggle if we're not trying to take the concerns of both parties into account. And now this is that 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 little tidbit made it a little bit more interesting, not fatal, but a little bit more interesting, because that suggests to me that mom that her concern it almost verifies that solution verifies that mom may have a somewhat different view of this than you all do. She's right. in, let's see what she can do with one-on-one -on -one help mode. You all are in, let's dramatically reduce expectations and go from there mode. Um, what you're not saying is that mom, here's what mom didn't say, if I've, if I've got it right, mom didn't say, not only is she not coloring, um, I don't want you to lower the ball bar at all for her until she gets one-on-one -on -one help. She didn't throw down that gauntlet, right? So she didn't say that. No. It still feels like mom is okay with reducing expectations, and she's not saying it's one-on-one -on -one help or nothing. She's not saying that. Right. So there's, there's wiggle room there. What she's saying at the moment is simply that the, the, what the reduced expectations is going to look like doesn't work for her. Right. And so that still found, sounds doable to me. We don't have anybody, we don't have you all, we don't have her throwing down the gauntlet and saying it's our solution or nothing. And right. that's good. So I'm still hopeful, given what I'm hearing, and of course I don't know the situation as fully as I might like, but that's the nature of the radio program beast. I'm hopeful that you all can still get this done. Um, let's just make sure that mom's concerns, not just about the solution, but mom's concerns are well understood because that will greatly increase the likelihood of us coming up with a solution that works for her too. Okay. There you have it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for calling in. What an interesting and real-life scenario. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Uh, boy, real life. 
Nothing like it, eh? And I'm glad we're starting to get some calls on our educator radio program, something I should mention. Uh, yes, we are going to have Anytown Elementary uh, on this program. It may not be starting in the first week of December, as I had hoped, but I'm now very optimistic that if our first Anytown school doesn't work out, our second will, um, probably starting in January, since we're going to miss a few programs uh, in late December anyways because of the holiday season. But um, Anytown Elementary is still on the agenda, as well as you hearing from the people who've been leading the charge in each of the different schools in Maine that have been implementing the model. So all of those things are still on the docket. We just have to push them off a little bit until January. Uh, We do not have another caller, so I am going to spend our last 20 minutes talking about key themes um, because, um, well, here they are. I'm just going to cover a few here, and they're relevant to the call that we just received. The first one, it sounds like, Um, everybody who's involved in the situation with the student who we just heard described is good with. Sounds like it. Kids do well if they can. Kids do well if they can. Basically says that if this kid could do well, he or she would do well. And that if he or she isn't doing well, something must be getting in his or her way the most important theme of the model. Kids do well if they can. What's getting in the kid's way? Lagging skills. The kid is lacking the skills to do well. This kid is lacking the skills to meet certain expectations that are being placed upon him or her. Now, I don't know about all of the lagging skills of the student we just heard described, but I suspect she's lacking some, and I suspect that those lagging skills are getting in the way in specific situations that are called unsolved problems. Unsolved problems are the specific expectations a student is having trouble meeting because of skills the student is lacking. Unsolved problems, lagging skills. That's the raw material of implementing this model. It's the raw material of understanding. We want to come to view each behaviorally challenging student's difficulties through the prism of lagging skills and unsolved problems. So often in our meetings, and here's practical for you, so often in our meetings, so often in our functional behavior assessments, so often in our behavior plans, we're focused on behavior. That's why they call it a behavior plan. That's why they call it a functional behavior assessment. 
or functional assessment of behavior. Psychiatric diagnoses are largely based on behavior. And while there's no reason to be allergic to psychiatric diagnoses and there's no reason to be allergic to focusing on behavior, it's become quite clear to me over the years that focusing on the behavior the student exhibits when he or she is having difficulty meeting our expectations is focusing on the least important part. The most important part of helping a behaviorally challenging student is figuring out what skills the student is lacking, figuring out the specific expectations the student is having difficulty meeting because of those lagging skills, and making sure that everybody has those lenses on. If a student is hitting, yeah, I suppose we could put the student on a behavior plan to not hit, but the unsolved problems that are causing the hitting, the unsolved problems that are setting in motion the hitting, difficulty with a math assignment, difficulty getting along with another student on the school bus, difficulty standing in line for lunch, the unsolved problems will remain unsolved. So we've been targeting behaviors, and we've been replacing behaviors, and we've been extinguishing behaviors for a really long time. And in this model, we and the student and his classroom teachers and his classmates and his parents are far better served by focusing on lagging skills and these specific expectations, unsolved problems, the student is having difficulty meeting because of those lagging skills. Huge key theme, all tracing back to kids do well if they can. Now, I'm often asked, is there any research supporting the kids do all if they can philosophy, or is kids do all if they can purely philosophical? Uh, kids do all if they can is not purely philosophical. We have a mountain of research that has accumulated over the years, over the last 30, 40, 50 years, telling us why challenging kids are challenging, why challenging kids are having difficulty doing well. And what does that research, what is the single most compelling finding from that mountain of research? Behaviorally challenging kids are lacking skills. Kids do well if they can. If they have the skills to do well, they will do well. Otherwise, they won't. Key theme number one. Now, it is contrasted by a much more popular theme that floats around out there called kids do well if they want to. Kids do all if they can and kids do all if they want are two completely different themes and they have completely different implications for what we're thinking about this kid and how we're trying to help him. When you have kids do all if they can lenses on, you are viewing challenging behavior through the prism of lagging skills. 
when you have kids do all if they want a lenses on, and let's face it, those lenses have been very popular for a very long time, in my estimation. That's why we've been losing behaviorally challenging kids at school for a very long time. Because kids do all if they want a lenses basically say that the reason this kid isn't doing well is because he doesn't want to do well. Why would any kid not want to do well? I started asking myself that question a long time ago. This one, too. Don't all of us do the best we can most of the time in the circumstances we find ourselves in? Well, the kids do well if they want a mentality has those questions covered with concepts like very popular concepts in schools as well as in lots of other places like secondary gain, competing contingencies. As I've been saying in my workshops lately, let me let me translate secondary gain and competing contingencies. Not that everybody needs it translated, but I'll do it anyways. Here's what secondary gain and competing contingencies mean. It means that the kid has the skills to do well, but doing poorly is working out better for him than doing well would. When you really think about it, that makes no sense. Doing poorly is working out better for him than doing well would. i got to tell you, I've never seen that happen. Not if the kid had the skills to do well in the first place. If you have a kids do well if they want a mentality... If you think this is about secondary gain and competing contingencies, then what's the explanation for why a kid isn't doing well? Well, he's seeking attention. We all seek attention. Seeking attention is not limited to behaviorally challenging kids. Uh, There is a big difference between behaviorally challenging kids and other kids. Other kids have the skills to seek attention adaptively. Behaviorally challenging kids don't. It's not sufficient to say that a behaviorally challenging kid is behaviorally challenging because he's seeking attention. It's inaccurate. It's going to lead us down the wrong road. Uh, He's manipulative. He's coercive. He's coercing us into giving in. Uh... He's testing limits. We all test limits. As I told a group that I was speaking in front of last weekend, where I was speaking in Boston at one of the uh, Harvard Continuing Medical Education courses, this particular course was on autism, but I had driven from Portland Maine to Boston that morning to do the talk, and I told them that I had been testing limits for most of the drive down. I told them the key number there was 74. I had been driving 74 in a 65 zone. I told them the magic number seems to be 74 because you're testing limits at 74. You're doing it adaptively. 
We all test limits. Some of us have the skills to do it adaptively. Some of us don't. Those are all kids do well if they want explanations. They've all been very popular for a very long time. I don't think that they are accurate. They all suggest that the kid's challenging behavior is working for him, working at helping him get something, escape something, avoid something. And as I've also been saying a lot in my talks lately, thinking that challenging behavior is working isn't working. Not for the behaviorally challenging student, not for his classmates, not for his teachers. Thinking it's working isn't working. It's clearly not working. Wouldn't the student prefer to be doing well? That brings up key theme number two that I want to make sure we cover in our last few minutes here. Key theme number two is that doing well is preferable. Kids do well if they can is key theme number one. Doing well is preferable is key theme Number two, the student already wants to do well, which means that the intervention that we are led to when we believe that a kid isn't doing well because he doesn't want to, interventions aimed at giving the kid the incentive to do well, rewarding the behaviors we like and punishing the behaviors we don't, If doing well is preferable, then the student is already motivated to do well. The student already has the incentive to do well. He doesn't need more motivation from us. He needs something else. He needs us to recognize that it's lagging skills and unsolved problems that are at work here. And that the biggest favor we can do him is to be the person who finally at long last figures out what skills he's lacking, and making sure that we engage other people who are working with him in the building, in the process, so that everybody understands what skills he's lacking. Everybody is now viewing the student through the prism of lagging skills. And then the next big favor we can do, and this is a huge favor too, is to figure out what unsolved problems are coming into play here. What expectations is the student having difficulty meeting because of those lagging skills? Under what conditions are those lagging skills making it difficult for the student to meet the demands that are being placed upon him or her? My goodness, when you identify that information for a student, you have moved the process so far forward, words cannot say magical things, I don't want to sound too weird here, but magical things start to happen when people come to recognize that it's lagging skills that have been getting in the student's way all along. And when people come to recognize, and this is really fascinating when it happens, 
when people come to recognize that those lagging skills are getting in the way under very specific conditions and that those conditions are actually highly predictable. It starts to make sense to people why all that rewarding and all that punishing hasn't and won't get the job done. It helps people move into problem-solving mode, not extinguishing and replacing behavior mode. Huge. I can't overemphasize how huge it is. It's the new lenses that lead to new interventions. We're in the problem-solving business, not the behavioral replacement and extinction business. As I've already said in a slightly different way, you can replace and extinguish behaviors until the cows come home. The unsolved problems that are giving rise to those behaviors remain unsolved. But boy, do people, do adults, they are sort of energized to do something differently when it becomes clear to them not only can we identify highly specific unsolved problems, and not only can those problems be solved, something we really haven't been doing up until then, often, but now that we know what those unsolved problems are, the problem solving can be done proactively. And that we shall consider key theme number three. Actually, it might be key theme number six. Let me go through some key themes that I've covered without being explicit about them. We've got kids do all if they can. We've got doing well is preferable. We've got that we're about solving problems rather than replacing or extinguishing behaviors. We'll, We'll call that key theme number three. Key theme number four, the type of problem solving we're doing is collaborative not unilateral. Key theme number five, understanding comes before helping. You can't help if you don't understand. What's the raw material of helping? Lagging skills. What's the raw material of understanding? Lagging skills, unsolved problems. What's the raw material of helping? Lagging skills, unsolved problems. Now we're ready for key theme number six, and thank goodness, because we only have two minutes left. The problem solving is not only collaborative, it's proactive. Good luck solving these problems in the heat of the moment, emergently. Good luck. Um, The problem-solving is proactive, made possible by the fact that we've identified the unsolved problems already. We've done another thing that I haven't mentioned yet. We've prioritized. We know which unsolved problems we're working on, and we know which ones we're not because we know we can't work on all of them at once. I guess that could count as another key theme, but we'll stick with six. And now we are proactively and systematically starting to solve 
that mountain of unsolved problems that has accumulated for this student over the years. And you're the person who's doing it. You're the person who's helping people see this child through the prism of lagging skills and unsolved problems. You're the person who's helping people recognize that they're in the problem-solving business, not the behavioral replacement or extinction business. You're the person who's been helping them realize that since we know what the unsolved problems are, since we've prioritized, we can start solving problems proactively. You're elected. Lives in the Balance is here to help you do it. There's your key themes. And that's our program for the day. The Educators Panel is next week. Talk to you then.